news. The late debate with Katie Hannan on RTE Radio 1. Are further COVID restrictions on the way as Defence Forces mobilise to support booster rollout? When the airport bus costs more than the flight, is it time to tax aviation fuel? And why are we waiting? Who's funding National Broadband Ireland? And why is it falling so far behind target? We'll have all that and more on tonight's Late Debate. And joining us in studio tonight, we have Fine Gael Senator Garita Hearn, Shannon Spokesperson on Enterprise and Trade, Breed Smith, People Before Profit TD for Dublin uh, South Central, and Thomas Pringle, Independent TD for Donegal. We also have Craig Hughes, Political Correspondent for the Irish Daily Mail, who is in splendid isolation in an adjoining studio. And we want to hear from you, so please do get in touch. Text us on 51551, email us on latedebate at rte.ie or tweet to at latedebaterte. Now we might start for a change with COVID-19. And Craig, could you maybe bring us up to speed with the developments today? Because there, there were quite a few of them. And just, just there at the end of the day, I see uh, Health Minister Stephen Donnelly saying that it is now entirely possible that both the number of COVID-19 infections and hospitalisations could end up being worse than last January uh, due to this new variant, the Omicron variant. That's right. So Minister Donnelly, along with the leaders of the three government parties, uh, met with Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Holohan and with uh, the chair of NEFIT's uh, modelling group, um, Professor Philip Nolan, on uh, last night. Um, this is the modelling he's talking about. He's described it as stark while not revealing the exact figures, but saying that we could be seeing more hospitalisations than that we saw at the highest point um, last January. So very worrying stuff coming from, from Neffet there. Uh, Neffet will meet tomorrow and are expected to give advice um, then to government on, on Friday. What Minister Donnelly announced tonight was a major ramping up of the vaccination programme that will see uh, 300,000 booster vaccines given uh, per week. Um, the 15-minute observation wait time after your, your jab is to be removed. They say this will allow pharmacies and GPs to double their output. The number of GPs vaccinating is going to increase significantly. It's about 550 at the moment. Seven, it'll go, that'll rise to 750 next week and then over 1,000 the week after that. There will also be more pharmacists given vaccines. Um, the Defence Forces are again being drafted in. They have a limited number of vaccinators, but they will uh, again provide logistical support. Now, in the meeting with the CMO and Professor Nolan, uh, I understand um, that, that the government group asked for alternatives to be provided, not, not simply re restrictions to be discussed. Um, however, my understanding tonight is um, that senior cabinet ministers are now expecting uh, some form of restrictions to be advised by the CMO in his letter to government um, tomorrow night or, or on Friday. Uh, Typically, we have seen that the last sectors to reopen are the first to close. Um, so that will be an ominous tone for the hospitality sector. Um, in all that, again, though, an, an extra layer of confusion, both the Taoiseach and the Taunashta have said that there will be some flexibility given to events on New Year's Eve. Um, that has yet to be teased out. Minister Donnelly wouldn't be drawn on it uh, this evening. Um, so we're in a very strange space tonight whereby we are expecting some added restrictions and some and some additional recommendations to be provided and then also the prospect of uh, a bit of leeway on New Year's Eve. Yeah, because I thought listening to the mood music earlier, uh, Craig, that 
uh, and from what Leo Varadkar was saying on News Talk this morning, that, you know, they were expecting some kind of advice and recommendations around, you know, close contacts, maybe in relation to, whereas at the moment, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to restrict your movements or self-isolate if you're um, a close contact, that that might change. But I didn't get the sense that there was going to be... um, there was an expectation, uh, certainly at that point, that the hospitality might be. You yeah, know. but that that that's what has what has changed. Literally, as I spoke to a senior cabinet source about two hours ago, and that seems to be an, a significant shift, um, because there's a sense already that we have had the most restrictions in place in Europe. I mean, uh, the leaders and Minister Donnelly were giving a, a briefing document ahead of that meeting from the Department of Foreign Affairs, which gave an overview of restrictions uh, throughout Europe. And it was noted to me that we were the only country, with the exception of Norway, um, that had anything to do with, ha- with with limitations on household visits. And it was just pointed out that, you know, there was a bit of pushback in that meeting to the CMO where they were saying, Look, we've already had some of the toughest restrictions. However, what's been what's been countering all that is um, the threat of the Omicron variant. Um, and that's kind of superseding yeah. everything. And the mood has shifted tonight. Um I see the, the Chief Medical Officer of Northern Ireland, uh, Sir Michael McBride, I'll uh, put this to you, Gary. He says that he is more concerned now than at any previous point in the pandemic. Um, and he's saying that uh, the predictions now are that the Omicron will become a dominant strain up there before the new year and uh, will peak in mid-January with daily case numbers likely to break all records. Yeah, well, I suppose, first of all, I wouldn't I wouldn't go along that line of being more concerned now than ever in the pandemic for the simple reasons you? we've got we've got vaccines um so on that uh, we're in a lot stronger position than we were last christmas um if you look at the numbers at the moment the case numbers at the moment are either stabilizing or dropping in the last two weeks hospitalization numbers have went from 680 two weeks ago down to under 500 this week icu numbers have went from 135 140 down to 105 um booster vaccines are going out 1.1 million have gone out um there's so, a lot to be positive about. It, it's can, it's can very I just easy put you to though? scare the public um, and worry the public. And there is a huge concern with the Omicron yeah, variant. We have vaccines. Definitely. We people but we're are in a stronger position now than we were last but year. But is it not the problem? And this is why there's this mad scramble now uh, to, you know, get the army out and get everyone out, all hands on deck for this. Is that uh, for many people, their vaccines are, you know, very, very low efficacy against this Omicron variant. And the Omicron variant, we know once it gets hold, it doubles by the day. And surely the, the, you know, talking about low hospitalizations and low ICU numbers now is exactly the kind of talk that landed us in the trouble we landed in last Christmas. I suppose the question was, should we be more concerned now than ever uh, since this uh, uh, COVID-19 has been in the country? And uh, we, we shouldn't be because we, we have we have vaccines uh, to counteract that. Um, but, but, we, but the minister has just said this evening that we are likely to see more people hospitalised in January than, than last January, which was well, the yeah, most but, people we'd ever yeah, had no, hospitalised. And, and look, that, that, that's a prediction effort they're giving and, and, um, and they're experts in, in their assessment. But, you know, predictions they gave only two months ago have proven to be um, more than what actually happened. Um, but look, I think I think we're in a situation. That's, so you're going that's, with the Taoiseach line of hold our nerve, don't you know? Well, like talk, ca- talking, the mood in government buildings is calm. We're told. Well, well, I think it should be, you know, because uh, like the rollout of of vaccines, rollout of boosters have gone really well. Um, there's a good plan in place. Um, you know, restrictions were brought in a number of weeks ago. Um, uh, 
I think it, maybe at the end of the week there might be more more tweaks to it, but I don't see a reason, um, like Craig was talking about, in terms of uh, closing hospitality or anything like that. I, like I, I personally schools? don't see. Oh no, I don't think we should close schools. Uh, like in the last week, you disagree week, with your your Shannon colleague. Yeah, well, we all we all Jerry have, we all have personal personal views on this. In my view, this is just my own personal view. I think. Schools should remain open um, until the end of term. I think if you look at the cases of uh, COVID in uh, five to 11 year olds, it's been reducing for the last week, day on day. I think there was a case probably two weeks ago to close Is schools. Is that because a lot of parents are keeping their kids out of school because well, there's so much of COVID But the, but the, but the, the argument, the argument, The argument is, Katie, if we close schools now a couple of days before Christmas because of the case numbers, because of the variant, and the prediction is right that we're in a worst case in, in January, like then the talk is we close uh-huh, the schools again. Them? Okay. You know, sorry, so I, Kate, I just want to clarify something. There. I wasn't saying that hospitality would, would be closed. I was saying they're, they're, that they're expecting additional restrictions on it, just just to be clear. On that. I, yeah. No. Okay. Like I think I think there is Let's a possibility the of, of, of tweaks, people. but but I think it's 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 really important that, that the hospitality sector know that um, um, they have. Uh, some sort of opportunity of, of having their businesses open during, during this period. I think that's important. Albeit while being told, while everyone is being told, don't go out. But we're going to let you stay open. Well, I, I think naturally people are cautious. Like I, I've spoken to loads of people who own restaurants and bars and they talk about restrictions being brought in by government, but they say, look, people are naturally nervous themselves. Um, so that's why their business is down. That's why EWSS was restored. Uh, that's why the supports are there. Because, as well as restrictions, uh, the public themselves are very concerned going into environments like that. Uh, Breed Smith. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I understand why some politicians would say don't panic and, you know, everything is going to be OK. But really, we do have to listen to the public health advice and to what the CMO predicts and what the NEFET are predicting. And I know they're sort of seen as hate figures, but on the other hand, they are the professionals in public health and we have to rely on their their advice and their predictions. And there's no doubt that, I mean, all of us around this table will have had the experience in our own lives where we actually know lots of people now who've had COVID or are close. I've been a close contact. I don't know how many times in the last few weeks, but I know lots of people who actually have COVID and I keep hearing of more. Whereas a year ago, you'd hear of somebody who knew somebody. Now you know them all yourself. So it's it, it, it's not a makey-up figure. Omicron is definitely... Um, spreading and spreading like wildfire. What I think the government should do is close the schools early. And I think to do so, they would be creating a circuit breaker because it is spreading very uh, strongly among um, young children. And if they could create this circuit breaker and give people uh, a chance to be together with their families over Christmas instead of keeping the schools open to the last minute and then saying, oh, now we have to restrict family visits. At least we would have children out of school for about three days. But to do that... They'd have to facilitate the working parents. What about garrets? And, and, and we're advocating that they look at regulating, put bringing in a regulation to change the force majeure regime so that parents could get three days but, but off work. Katie, if, there, you, if you close yeah. schools, it means you close creches as well. It has a huge impact on a family and parents if you do it and do it immediately or do it very quickly. And that's why uh, we're saying bring in regulations yeah, to allow for there's, force there's majeure. Tr- there's three or four days. But a lot like of those kids, pe- yeah. kids, kids go to school, they meet the same kids every day, they're in pods, they're probably actually in a safer network or in a safer group by being in school rather than oh. being outside the school and pe- okay. meeting other Sorry, kids t- and meeting t- other Thomas people. Pringle is rolling his eyes over there so I'll, what does that <laughs> signify, Thomas? Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, the reasons schools schools I think do have to close early. I think we have to do it. Um, and you know, the, we're lucky in that the schools are going to be closing probably from Tuesday, Wednesday next week anyway. And um, my kid's school is open to Thursday actually. Right. So, well, and that and that's going to create that circuit breaker that um, the that we're, we're talking about, like you know, and. Yeah, the government talking now about a meaningful New Year's Eve rather than a meaningful Christmas of last year, and you know this is is crazy stuff. And uh, you know if if it's serious and if it's, we have to we have to take this on board and we have to take on board the Omicron variant and what it, what it is capable of doing, then we need to take action now to ensure that the public is safe. And what, what about just just to go back to the schools, just particularly because I know people are very um, obviously invested in in what what happens in this, uh, not just for next week, but mm. you know obviously what happens in January when, as we are now hearing, if this Omicron thing is, takes off and we're seeing massive numbers of cases and, and ultimately numbers of, of hospitalizations. If, if, if What criteria then, you know, if, if at the level we're at now we close the schools, what criteria and what case can be made to reopen them in January? Well, what should have been done weeks ago and months ago probably is to uh, help a filter purchase scheme for schools to en- enable schools to actually be able to cl- clarify and clean the air that they have in the classrooms and that, that would have made a huge difference if the government had had a, a bought into the HEPA filters when it was being mooted in the first place. For funding, um, now, now, they, now they've announced the HEPA filter scheme that they're going to fund it now. Um, after t- last week or the week before, they were saying that HEPA filters were a waste of time and didn't make any difference. Now they're going to fund it. They've re reinvigorated the health the checks in the schools and that there as well now, which has shown that the schools are actually going down and the, the effects are going down because it's been reinstated, whereas the government stopped it months ago. And this is the kind of stuff that they're adding to the problem rather than actually solving it and they need to be taking action to ensure that the problem can be solved and that would be I think I think everybody would appreciate that far more and look yes it is difficult if the school you close the schools early what happens in January but you actually put in place the measures to make schools safer which no one in government has ever said happy filters are a waste of time all five of us agree here the case numbers will more than likely increase in January. If we're making the case, which I'm not, but if we're making the case that schools close this week, how can we possibly make the case that schools reopen at any point in January when we're all in agreement cases are going to go up? I don't get the logic of that, I have to say, because if we don't close the schools this week, and more and more children get infected. How do we reopen them in because, January? Because less and I less are getting. I don't get the logic. Breed, breed, and less and less are getting affected every day at the moment. Those are the numbers. The numbers are going down children. every single. Yeah, less, less and less children, children between I, the age well, of five and eleven are getting affected every why, single why day in the last seven is, days. Um, I don't know. I, th- I like. I, I could I think it possibly be because we're now asking children to wear masks? Exactly. We are now doing contact yeah, tracing. Like, it's interesting. Like, we brought antigen it's, testing it's into probab- schools. I think antigen testing definitely has had had an impact. I think masks. It, it'd be easy for me to say it has. I think it's probably a bit early to 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 say that for certain. Um, but it it it's played a factor. I think antigen testing certainly. Um, uh, it's hard to know, but it it, it it's very just positive. Just when you say nobody, no, nobody ever said that HEPA filters were a waste of time. The the, the minister for health, I, I <laughs> saw the interview with my own eyes, explained that they were not uh, minded. We were not minded to support uh, HEPA filters in classrooms, except in exceptional cases, because this was the advice that the government had from. Yeah, yeah, but uh, the point, but the, but the point I was making, no, no one, no one was suggesting for a second that they're they're an absolute waste of time. Like that's just you know. <laughs> no, but you weren't. But fun, uh, they weren't. Yes, they weren't going to pay for them. <laughs> Schools weren't being funded to put them in. 
the, they weren't uh, big supporters the, the, to put the them in. Do you accept the, that? Do you accept that the fact I, that we now have a, a, yeah, no, of course, a U-turn on that is is a, an a, admission? Yeah, that but you, policy yeah, on but this you, you was see not. Over, you, saw, you see, over the last 18, 20 months, there's been changes uh, in in policy all the time in, in relation to COVID. The because signs around change, HEPA filters. The, let me just tell you, the signs around HEPA filters has been around for eighteen months. If anyone bothered to read the papers, yeah. it is not. This is not. Uh, amazing uh, revelation that has just been discovered by scientists. It has been around the, the for the entire, almost for, for the, the entire pandemic. Of yeah, the and, pandemic. Yeah, and at the very start of the, the pandemic, it was realised at the very start that people who were younger were less likely to get seriously ill. And the decisions that were made at the very start, and there was a million decisions that had to be made at the time, was in terms of protecting older people. So... You know, you might say that, that, that the science was there in ter- terms of HEPA filters going into primary schools. But like, sometimes it's hard to, hard to remember back 18 months ago. The priority well, back then was to protect, ago, was the priority the back then was protecting nursing homes, was protecting elderly people, um, was getting people, uh, was getting people um, 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 support and help with supporting Senator, businesses. Excuse me, do you mind me saying something because you're talking all the time? Do you know how I know you're a member of Fine Gael? You don't listen to other people. And she has just explained to you that the recommendation and the science has been there for 18 months. And, uh, and we had Orla Hegarty and all sorts of professional people giving evidence to show that they did recommend this, that they said it helps. And it was ignored. And you're trying to re- rewrite history. It was ignored by the government. They may not have said that's a load of rubbish, but they ignored it. So, Breed, when Katie turned to me, she asked me, did I agree with her? And I said, yes. So I listened and I answered and I agreed. But I explained that there was a million decisions that needed to be made at the start of this pandemic. But Gary, can I put to you that we had principals uh, contacting our show yeah. last night, um, telling us that... They they don't know where to go for these HEPA filters. Uh, we had one principal who has got a quote that is four times the actual grant that he's being told he's going to be given for HEPA filters. Uh, they, I mean, they're getting no support. They're being told to go out themselves and secure these HEPA filters, which is going to be a right bone fight for whatever HEPA filters are in the country now, if they want to get them in place over the next uh, short time. Is that a way to support children? And when you talk about saying we need to get the schools open in January, what is really being done on a practical way by government at the moment to ensure that the schools will be as safe as possible and will be uh, fit to be reopened in January? Yeah, uh, well, well, first of all, by rolling out the vaccinations for five to 11 year olds, uh, that changes that changes everything um, in terms of having, having them vaccinated by the time they go back uh, Have we, we learned anything? Is it not now that vaccinations alone cannot get ahead of this? No, but vaccinations have been the biggest game changer since it. It doesn't alone uh, change uh, the pandemic, but it certainly is the biggest difference uh, uh, in, terms of, in terms of numbers, in terms of cases, in terms of hospitalizations, ICUs. Okay, I'm getting a massive number here, actually, while we were talking. Uh, my screen is after lighting up uh, beside me here. And I'm trying to click into... Oh, I want to click over for me. Uh, why are we not hearing from the CMO directly? This censoring is ridiculous at this stage of the pandemic. We need their voices. I don't want public health advice from politicians. Uh, we have uh, vaccines are, are to prevent serious illness, not to stop spread of mild disease. They still do their job. There's no need to scare people, says Ed. Fair play to that Fine Gael person. 
uh, not your mother, Gareth. Uh, <laughs> uh, great to hear. Great to, to hear someone talk. A uh, sense for a change says this one saying, "I'm not a Finnegale person." In in brackets. Um, good, good judgment. Uh, <laughs> You're saying they are, then though. There's a uh, Katie. I'm only tuning in now, but I was out shopping tonight in Blanchardstown Shopping Centre and couldn't believe the huge number of young people not wearing masks. So disappointed. Um, and there's more in that line. And unfortunately, my screen has let me down here, so I can't. I might ask, I might ask Brian up there to uh, delete some of those texts so I can get to some of the ones down below. Um, oh, yes, this is the one I was trying to read here because I was wondering, this is Katie. I'm furious listening to this about closing schools early. I'm self-employed and trying to get my business back up and running. Closing schools has a devastating effect on my family and my business. Schools will be closed for two weeks, which is long enough. Kids have missed so much school time already. Please stop advocating this. This is from Elizabeth in Rahini. Um, I think that is a diff. I, I, I do think, Breed, and also you've got to think there's a lot of healthcare workers and vaccinators who, if we close the schools, will not be able to, you know, won't have somebody at home to mind those kids. Well, there is a knock-on effect. I don't doubt that. And that's why I'm making the argument for force majeure days to be regulated in a different way so that they can be taken. I mean, you're talking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, effectively. You're saying your kids are still in school till Thursday, but most schools will close on the Wednesday. And the point of this is to argue for a circuit breaker in trying to uh, stop the transmission among children so that they can be mixing with their grannies and their aunties on Christmas. But you see, there's two sides to this, isn't there? I get contacted by loads of teachers and principals and groups of parents who are saying, please get them to close the school early. So there is a debate going on and I'm reflecting that debate. I'm not trying to just stir it up here that there is a concern and that there is a, a cohort in Irish society that think this would be the right thing to do in the lead up to Christmas. And I actually see the sense of it as long as we protect the workers and give them uh, the paid time off. Uh, we should be reinstating the PUP in full for those who are impacted by the restrictions that will continue to exist around hospitality, taxi drivers, musicians, etc. And we should be reinstating the sort of basic things we did at the beginning, like banning evictions, freezing rents, giving people as much support as possible to be able to see this through. Because there is no doubt they're warning us this is going to go way out of control and the overwhelming uh, of the hospital system is the worrying thing. Very, very worrying thing. I don't think we're seeing as many deaths, but then we don't get the daily figures of deaths. But we are definitely seeing a lot of sick people. How long does Thomas Pringle and Breed Smith think it will take to put HEPA filters in every classroom in the country? Will 2024 uh, be before the government manage that, says this texter. Um, and then another one, uh, teachers are mothers, fathers, daughters, sons and grandchildren too. They would like to have a chance to spend Christmas safely. I teach senior infants and the stress of trying to keep the children safe is huge. Um, and then we have a, a tweet here from uh, Peter Dooley saying... Breed Smith and Thomas Pringle on late debate calling for the schools to close this Friday. This is the height of the so-called opposition abandoning the most marginalised children yet again with the most amount of school days already lost in Ireland. It's a real tough one, that. I mean, people are yeah. very, very it, divided it, can, on can, it. Can I just say, like, I, I understand why Breed and why Thomas would suggest it and why some parents are, are concerned and would think that what, that might be the right thing to do. I can understand why people think that. Uh, but we, we we believe it's better for kids to be in school. Um, uh, they have lost a huge amount of days. It's very difficult for parents if we said tonight, look, schools are going to close tomorrow. Uh, we're doing a circuit breaker for four or five days. It, like it, We'll have so many more issues on the back of it when, um, 
you know, they're in a good place at the moment. The numbers are dropping in terms of schools. Vaccinations are going out between five and 11 year olds. I think we I think we do more in terms of solving the problem by encouraging five and 11 year olds to get vaccinated rather than just closing schools for three or four days. But I do understand why people think it might work. Um, I've got a teacher here. I, I'm a second level teacher. And I firmly believe that they should be closed um, this Friday. We believe small numbers next Monday to Wednesday. Anyway, I mean, that is a point. There is a really big question about how many people will keep their children at home. They'll be voting with their feet. In yeah. ways. Parents should uh, be in support of such a move. HEPA filters are long overdue and now belatedly they provide money for them. Schools are safe. Remember that mantra ages ago. Pathetic and inexperienced sums them up. That's from John Andrade. And we have Aidan Looney, who is the principal in Milton Manbury National School again pointing out that HEPA filters have to be paid out of the school's minor works grants for 2022 to 2023 school year. Um, and he's uh, obviously very unhappy about that. We leave the schools. I do want to touch before we leave COVID on that vote in the Shannon this evening, uh, the TRIPS waiver vote. Uh, because if people don't know, the Shannon has passed a motion that was put down by Alice Mary Higgins calling on Ireland to publicly support a TRIPS waiver after the government withdrew its counter motion. What does this actually mean in practice now? Will this, will the government honour this vote and, and lobby the European Commission to support a TRIPS waiver? Well, I suppose, first of all, the government had had a counter motion down, but we didn't want to put it put it to a vote because we didn't want to divide um, the Shannon on it. Um, like the government, the government don't negotiate in Europe. Um, the Taunish or the Taoiseach, it's the European Commission um, negotiate on behalf of the EU member states. Um, yeah, that's why I asked: Is yeah, the government going to lobby like, the European Commission? You know, the Taoiseach the, the and the Taoiseach are on record as saying that they're sceptical about the waiver. Um, but they're open-minded. They're they're willing to listen. Everyone wants to make sure that um, that vaccines get get delivered right across uh, the world. But you know, some some differ on on how that can be done. Um, and the real challenge is not just delivering Would the vaccines, ha- but it's actually the rollout in those countries and how to do that. It's the production. Ha- has there been lobbying <clears throat> by? Uh, the pharma, which is huge in this country, we and you know we know this, we understand this. Pfizer, in particular, uh, obviously, uh, is a huge player in the vaccines uh, market, and a huge player in Ireland's uh, FDI uh, market. So, has there been conversations around that? Um, not that I'm aware of. Um, I don't know. Look, like the Tonish himself has spoken to the trade representative in the US, uh, in, in the US, saying that you know um, if the WTO come with uh, a letter of recommendations, uh, uh, they'll assess it and, and, and they'll view it. But um, they're open-minded and they're willing to uh, they're willing to listen. Can um, I make a point? Please. Because we've raised this continually in the Dáil for the last year that there should be a wave on trips and that the government should be supporting that. And whether it's the Taunish or the Taoiseach, they were very adamant and almost proud of the fact that they were backing the European Commission on this and that they were right to do this, that there's another way of resolving the issue through the, the what do they call it, the, the COVAX programme, and that they were proud to be part of the COVAX programme, but you cannot be lifting intellectual property rights. They've dug in their heels on this so many times. Now, I, I think the motion in the Shannon tonight, particularly after hearing the Senator say that they, did, they lifted their counter motion in order not to have division, which means that they're not serious about supporting it. They were just dividing an argument or a row. 
So I think fair play to Alice Mary. She put up a great battle. She made great arguments, really clear, really smart, intelligent and reflected what needs to be done. But this is outrageous. European parliamentarians, the people we elected to the European Parliament are in favour of the European Commission arguing for lifting the the intellectual property rights. It is the unelected commission the people we don't see or know or hear about who are blocking it and are very passionate about blocking it on on, on the WTO, on the World Trade Organisation uh, Forum or whatever it is they sit on. So it is outrageous, it's selfish, it's obscene that we would be holding back billions of people across the planet from being vaccinated because we hold on to this concept that if a patent is developed, it belongs to the big pharma. Most Uh, of the resources to develop that patent was actually put in by public money in most countries across the world. Public money developed these vaccines and there's no intellectual property that belongs to any individual that's for the public good. Is there a debate in Fine Gael about this? Um, is there is there a division? Is there discussions no, about it? No, because no. honestly, outside of yourselves, I'm finding I'm finding it hard to find anybody with a good argument against the trips waiver. Yeah, no, like there's 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 um, there's conversations the whole time. But like, it, like in fairness, even Alice Mary herself tonight acknowledged the contributions from the government side um, in the debate tonight. So it, you know, it was it was a civilized debate um, between both between both sides. But but for government and, and for the Taoiseach and the Tonish, it's a, like it's not just about how do you get vaccines to to develop developing countries, it's um it's how do they roll out the vaccines? There's no point sending you know millions well, of they vaccines they over, to be able to over to a country out. and that's then they a, don't have the infrastructure or, or 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 the capability to, to, able, to, to able to do ro- the roll out. And just, just in terms, just vaccine, in terms, of, just in terms of countries and 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 regions giving giving vaccines, be, you, the European you, Union you, have given more than the USA. Um, this argument that we, you know, we're not going to give, <laughs> we're not going to support a trips waiver because we can't really trust these uh, developing world countries to actually produce the vaccine yeah. and roll it out properly. Is yeah. that is that actually well, well, the argument? No, it, it's not true that we won't support it. The Taunish and the Taoiseach have both said that they're open minded. They on did it. not. They've both said they're they've both said they're open minded uh, on it. They're not convinced at the moment. Uh, but they're opening to listen. Uh, to listen, and I wonder would the Omicron uh, crisis that we're facing convince them? It started in South Africa, one of the first countries to really shout at them. We need to lift the intellectual property rights, and South Africa have been through the movie before with the with the intellectual property rights over AIDS medication that the, the world was saying, "Oh no, you can't touch it," all because of profit. And the reality is, that, like this. COVID won't be over unless everybody in the world gets their vaccinations. And for us to sit around and say that, oh, well, we can't be sure that you're going to give it out properly. We, we're not going to give it to you. And so, I mean, that's wrong. We, we, we can't be taking that stance. And unfortunately, the government isn't going to go out. And, and, and I, I would c- congratulate Alice Mary and the Civil Engagement Group and the Shannon for putting forward this motion and getting it passed. But unfortunately, I don't think the government are going to argue at a European level to have it implemented. So there was what was utterly pointless then the the vote this evening. No, I don't think it was pointless. I, mean, I, th- well, I think it, it, show, it shows no the rest, it shows the, the world, the rest of the world, there's that a technicality there's politicians in Ireland that actually are in favour of it and would would make would work to make it happen and we'll push as hard as we can on our government to make it happen. But our government is going to lay back and and won't won't con- take that fight up. Uh, Craig, I, well, I guess the counterpoint to all of that would be that we've seen. 
in Nigeria, for example, large amount of vaccines um, expiring. In South Africa, there also is an issue with supply, but vaccine hesitancy playing an issue. Similarly, in, in Jamaica, there was um, uh, part of the Oireachtas Committee the last year, we were told in Jamaica, I think it's the uptake is as low as 18%. So actually, the main problem uh, is around vaccine hesitancy and in some cases, literacy in some countries and not being able to get the accurate <laughs> message um, uh, to some groups to let them know that the vaccine is there for them to take. I mean, and they're, they're just some, some, some easy examples. It's not the main problem, Craig. The main problem is that these countries don't have the patent to be able to produce the vaccines themselves on scale or at scale. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I don't think anyone's in dispute that vaccines shouldn't be made available to everyone in the world and that, you know, the Western world could be, could be doing more. I'm simply pointing out that it is a multifaceted problem and that there's other sides of the problem that need to be tackled as well, um, such as vaccine hesitancy. Okay, okay, we'll leave that there. Just before we leave, I just last couple of texts in relation to the schools issue, which has really energised our listeners this evening. Uh, this is from a parent of a child with additional needs in a special school. He's fully vaccinated. If he's at home, he loses out again. A prisoner in his own home, no access to any resources. Let's not pretend that he won't be at home for January. Uh, and they, that's obviously a very vulnerable cohort of children that, that uh, need to be considered uh, with every step of this. And uh, this one, I'm a secretary, it's a school secretary. Nobody sees the work involved when a pupil tests positive. The phone calls, letters, time consuming for principal and secretary. Pupils have missed nothing in the curriculum this term. These weeks in pre-COVID would have been Christmas concert rehearsals, etc. Parents allowed parties, sleepovers and after school meets. Why? Should they not have protected their children, close the schools, protect the staff, uh, says that school secretary. And there we'll take a break. The Late Debate with Katie Hannan on RTE Radio 1. She was a TD from 89 to And you're welcome back. Uh, now, I want to go to uh, that ESRI report that says that the exemption from fuel tax enjoyed by airlines must be removed and free carbon emission allowances must be scrapped. The report says that if carbon emissions from the industry are to fall, we can't continue to have flights that cost less than the bus to the airport. Where do we stand on this, Thomas? Yeah, I think it's right. Um, the airlines get basically no carbon tax on the, on the fuel that they use. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that it's actually a European Commission that would actually uh, cover, the, cover the, the carbon tax on airlines. And they're, they're recommending that it should be removed. And the, but they said the exemption should be kept for corporate jets. So corporate jets will keep the, their free um, carbon and the rest of us will pay for the carbon that the airlines use. So, um, But look, I, the reality is that until an alternative fuel source is found for airlines and that they are going to be, they are one of the major contributors to climate change, there's no doubt about that. So the, the airlines have to pay. Now we have to find a way and if we could find a way where it could be taken out of the profits of the airlines rather than passed on to customers, that would be interesting. But, but I think... Should, but hang on a second, we, don't we want it to be passed on to customers? Isn't this the whole, is this not part of the point of it? If they don't have an alternative fuel source at the moment, a viable one, surely the only way to bring down emissions is to stop people flying. Yeah, oh, yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I think I think we're going to have to address that fact and we're going to have to address the fact that people can't continue to fly and can't continue uh, if we're going to do achieve climate change uh, objectives if we want to achieve it. Like, and that's the reality of the situation. It's going to take huge changes that is going to happen to every, all of our lives over the next uh, 10 years or longer. And this is one of the changes that's going to take place. 
Breed Smith, should flying become something that only rich people can afford to do? No, no, not at all. But I, I, there is a problem because hitherto um, the aviation industry were allowed to buy into the ETS, the, the, the trading and in, in emissions, which could mean that they'd, you know, they wouldn't pay the carbon tax and the fuel, but they'd, you know, but make a contribution somewhere to a rainforest or something like that. Um, but they're they're also allowed to give, give the dividends of vast profits. It's been a vastly profitable industry. And in this country, it has been, you know, the model of the industry has to exp- has been to expand, to expand. So I think the figure is from 2005, it has expanded by 60%. And we've built a new runway in Cork. We've plans for a new runway in Dublin. It's just not sustainable from a climate point of view. It is not sustainable. And I think, yeah, if if all fuel has been has carbon tax on it, why is aviation fuel exempt? People who go to put oil in their home heating tank, that's carbon taxed. Put diesel in your car, that's carbon taxed. Why is aviation fuel exempt? Because the industry has been ring fenced and protected up to now. But it is a very, very profitable industry as well. It has gone through a very, very <coughs> rough time, though. Indeed, well, like it one has. Of, one of the it has been hit one of the hardest. Oh no, absolutely, indeed it has. But if you talk about the future when we're out of the pandemic and the industry begins to expand again, because that is the plan. These runways are planned for an expanding industry. And I think we do have to look at sustainability of continually expanding this kind of a model of an industry, because, as Thomas said, we don't have the alternative fuels to uh, run aviation on and make it less damaging to the planet. But we don't have bridges either to get and to, we don't have bridges to Europe. Or and we to don't have high-speed tunnels that lead us to France or Britain yeah. or whatever. I think, We're uh, an island nation. But the expansion of it is massive in this country, 60% since 2005. And I think we need to think about that. The government has been pushing for this. The industry has been pushing for it. And we need to step back and think about that a bit. But you can't deny that the carbon tax, if it applies to fuels elsewhere, should also apply to aviation. Craig? Yeah, I, I see a difficulty with this. Um, in, in the first, like, uh, we are told that climate cha- uh, to counteract clim- climate change, we're going to have to make unpopular decisions. Um, and apart from the ESY report saying that we would really need a big increase um, for this to have a real impact, um, and I know, Katie, you mentioned that the aviation sector has been hit so badly, but if we were to reduce the number of inbound passengers in, into the country, which is, you know, which would be the objective by reducing the amount of air travel, just think of the knock-on effect that would have on the hospitality sector here, which has also gone through a devastating time. So do we really want to introduce a measure that will also reduce the level of tourism into our country? It's a, it's a very, very... <laughs> like Craig makes a very good uh, Craig makes a very good point there because if you look at the restrictions that were introduced in the last couple of weeks, people talk about the hospitality sector, but the sector that was hit the most really... Um, was tourism and aviation. Uh, like, only a couple of months ago, people would have been of the view, it looks like 2022 is going to be a good summer, um, tourism is going to, be, uh, going to be good, aviation is going to be good. Like, that view's not there anymore. Um, like, I think people realise that it's not going to be as good as, we, uh, as good as we thought. On the other side, you know, I come from, I come from an area which is uh, very agricultural-based and, you know, there's certainly a view in the farming sector that all areas need to play their part. Uh, in terms of climate change, in terms of emission, not just farmers. Um, so, you know, I, I do get the point that um, uh, something needs to be done to recognise it. I'm not quite sure that just when we've almost essentially closed down the whole sector is the time to do it. Um, but, you know, we do need, need to recognise that 
you know, in, in terms of climate change, climate change and, and aviation, things are definitely changing. Well, they're talking, they're talking about actually doing it from 2023 to 2033. That, uh, you know, so it's not going to happen uh, in a flash or overnight or anything like that there. Like, and it's, it's, it's a, a long-term project and a long-term plan. And hopefully in that period, an alternative fuel source might be uh, established or found for, for airlines as well, which will help in, in reducing the carbon footprint, which is important and which we have to do. Like rea- The reality no is if we don't do it and if we bury our heads in the sand, it's going to come back and bite us in the arse. <laughs> the A word on late debate. Are we allowed, Brian? Uh, okay, we will. I want to move on from that again. We are still getting texts in about schools. Uh, I'll just give you one couple of more. A small business owner here listening to Bonker's idea of closing schools from Breed and Thomas. Uh, what about working parents, small businesses who have window to actually generate income this side of Christmas? Force majeure days off would close my business. Time to get real folks, uh, kids in safer environment in school. Get large retail at supermarkets and shopping centres to cop on and be responsible. No basic precautions of crowd control, sanitizer, and poor mask wearing. This is where the kids will end up if they are off school. And uh, my mother is in her 70s, says another listener, and lives alone. She spent every day of the pandemic and last Christmas on her own. I would like her to feel able to spend Christmas with us. Closing the schools early gives us a chance to do that. How many of us will look back in this time with regret? Please close the schools on Friday is the plea there. I think the, the, the previous texter made a good point about returning to crowd controls and shops and proper mask wearing. You see, because no one thing is a solution. It's a whole suite of measures. And... I, I don't like going into shops now. They're too packed. You'd be scared of them. Like So if you have to drag your kids with you, then we need a bit more control about the numbers going in and out of shops. Uh, it just means waiting more and it may, may, means making sure that people have masks on them as well. Yeah, because you do want because you do still see people with, uh, you know, counters, check, you know, yeah. ca- clicking counters on the way into shops, but it just and, seem to be styling. I, I think that's line. a thing in terms of decisions we make. It should be more tweaks Maybe something like that, not, not necessarily that, but but things like that, just tweaks that we need to make over the Christmas period to be a bit more conscious um, about things, but certainly not um But if, you've, you know, got, if you've got a variant that's doubling yeah. by the day, I, yeah, look, Katie, I wonder like, like, to what degree tweaks You look at the numbers in the UK to. at the moment, like 78,000 uh, cases today. Exactly. Like it's just phenomenal. And, you know, all the science is telling us that we seem to be uh, possibly two weeks behind him. Now, our measures are a lot more stricter than the UK's, especially in terms of the hospitality sector. Um, so hopefully we won't go at the same pace as them. But, you know, that's that's a clear concern. OK, uh, another thing that's a clear concern, house prices. Uh, CSO Residential Property Price Index report for October showing house prices across the state risen again. They're now up by 13.5% annually. Uh, house prices outside of Dublin up by 14.6%. Border region prices up 24%. I mean, these are really scarifying mm. Uh, stats. Uh, I see Sinn Féin's owner Brent saying that these latest figures show that this government has completely lost control of house prices. Hard to argue with him, Gareth. Well, we're beating Sinn Féin's figures that they suggest uh, we build. In 2016, they they said uh, that we needed to build from 16 to 2021, that we need to build 36,000 houses. In that period, actually less than that period, by 2020, we built 39,500 houses. So we're beating Sinn Féin figures and they're telling us that we're failing. Look, I recognise hugely um, that there's not enough houses in the country, that we need to build more houses. Um, we've improved Has anyone year done, can on I ask year. Because I'm, really, I'm genuinely really interested in this. Has anyone done uh, an analysis to say how many houses would you need to build before it would start 
Would there be a tipping point where it might have an impact on actual house prices? Well, see, this is the funny thing, Katie. So you, you could have an analysis on that, but there's so many variable factors to it for it to actually happen. So like the logic would tell you, or the economics would tell you that if you have a, a, a higher supply, that the prices would just drop. But if you look back to 2008, 2007, 2008, we were building 80,000 houses. Exactly. The country was building 80,000 houses and the prices were still going up. But in fairness, there's 31,000 houses in construction in the last 12 months. I would expect of those 31,000 houses in construction, 99 to 100% of them will be, will be finished. That's a vast increase on where we were over the last number of years. But how many of the, those 31,000 houses, if we're calling them houses, they're actually units, I presume, yeah, and memo, yeah, yeah. most of them probably are apartments. How many of them are apartments that are being built in these uh, built-to-rent uh, outfits, which are charging rents that are you know, way, way, way outside uh, what... Uh, any nor anyone on any regular income could possibly. Yeah, well, I, I can speak from, from but I, I, I can't tell you the figures on that. But I, I, I can say from my own perspective in Tipperary that there's an awful lot of um, uh, houses being built and and, and um, uh, homes being built, uh, not not just apartments. Um, but from people I speak to, like they want a home. It doesn't matter um, how it was built. Who built it? No, but they want an affordable um, home. The main point oh, no, is that of course they want an affordable home. I'm not home. talking they about the type can't. of home. I'm talking about whether or not you can afford it. I just, yeah, breathe. Go on. Well, I mean, the, the, this is being put to us as if there, we aren't building enough homes, and we aren't. But there's also the question of empty properties, and the model that property is being developed on, and why the market is becoming so heated up. And what's in the mix here is this new model of investment. Property is the new gold on the planet. And in every country, there's more and more big investors investing in property more than they are in anything else. So you have REITs, you have vulture funds, you have cuckoo funds, you have all the big financiers investing in property. So you take a block of apartments near me in Ballyfermot. As they become empty, they're all being bought up by the one vulture fund. But they're not being let out again or sold again. They're lying empty. And I know there were, Tommy might know a bit more about this, but there were two council officials in front of the housing committee in the Oireachtas yesterday. Yeah, we were talking about they're this They're kind of in denial that this is going on, but it is going on whole scale that properties have been bought up and left empty. Even if you built another 100,000 houses and they were up for sale, you'd find that these vulture funds buy them up in the chunks that they're able to, in the limitations that the law currently allows them. So it's, it's about the model on which housing is being... Um, you know, distributed or allowed for. And the model that we have is massive investment by very, very wealthy investment global companies rather than seeing housing not as a commodity, but actually as a human need. And people need those things as much as they need education and that, health. They need a place to live. This is that's, what, that's what needs to happen. Breeders rate it. Like all over, all across Dublin, there's properties where there might be, say, 100 apartments and a vulture fund buys it up, lets out 15 or 20 of them. At a, a fixed rate and leaves the rest out there because it suits their budget, their their financial. It's an asset sitting on yeah, there. It's, it's their financial model that, that that it works on, and actually, landlord the landlords then are saying to the tenants, you can actually pay re- less rent, but we're going to say that this, this is the actual rent, so that they can keep their f- figures inflated, mm-hmm. and that's what it's about. So, 
there, there needs to be a sea change. And Gary talks about the government has built. There's so many X number of houses been built now. We need a sea change. We need a, a, a reality check where the government says that housing is for people to provide for themselves, to provide houses, rather than for the market to provide profits. Exactly. And that's, what, that's the change that will make a big difference. Yeah. Know, yeah. the, Can the, I just let Craig in? Because I did want you to, because this, this came up, uh, I don't know, was it yourself or where, where, uh, it was a, a story about uh, what the officials in the Department of yeah. Finance, under, you know, what they're telling the minister to say in relation to this or, or advising him in relation to this issue. Uh, so I have done some work on this where I, I looked at kind of internal documents around the planning of Housing for All um, that detailed minutes of meetings between the Department of Finance and the Department of Housing. Now, the Department of Housing and the Minister for Housing, Dara Bryan, were keen to introduce a vacant property tax However, the officials in the, in the Department of Finance came back and said, look, this isn't really possible. Um, we'll commit to, to undertaking a survey um, and just saying it really isn't possible now. It wasn't possible to identify the vacant homes. That's disputed by some people in the opposition who say the, the, using geodata, it, it would actually be possible. So there was, there was a bit of a, I guess, disconnect or, or the housing certainly wanted to go that direction, but it was pushed back by the Department of Finance. I just let you come back in on that, Gary. Yeah, no, just on two points. In terms of vacant properties, I think there's an awful lot of responsibility in local authorities. If you look at like the repair and lease scheme, there's local authorities like Waterford and Loud that have done really well in that, got properties in town centres, particularly in Waterford City, um, oh, repaired I, we, them, I, we had the numbers on out. this, Gareth, last night. The, the no, targets no, no, I, are like so way off from what, what each scheme no, as it's no, come no, along I, I, No, no, I respect that. The point beyond. I'm making is there's a large difference between councils, between local authorities and the delivery of, the, of that. And just in terms of home, owner, home ownership, Fine Gael are very supportive of home ownership. That's why we introduced the Help to Buy scheme. There's 22,000 individuals or couples or families who are in new houses at the moment because of that scheme. Sinn Féin want to abolish it. I don't know what Is region... Is this the shared equity scheme you're talking about? No, no help, 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 to, help to Buy scheme. Uh, it's it's it, the Help to Buy if you're a first-time buyer. And this is, this is the scheme that people say is going to increase house prices across the board. Well, it's been very successful. Like there's 22,000 22, <laughs> people right across the country. It's very successful for the people right who buy the, the houses, but if, if the houses are... It's very successful for the developers of houses. No, it's very successful for the people who live there. Like people who want to have a home, own a home, live in a home. Um, there's 22,000 now who are able to afford to do that because of that scheme. It's been hugely successful. 22,000 is a drop in the ocean what the demand is out there. I'm, I'm saying um, to those 22,000 people. I think it's a it's deflection. The argument about this is a deflection away from the real problem. And the real problem is, as I think myself and Thomas were trying to outline earlier on, is that, that, that housing has become uh, one of the biggest vehicles for profit rather than a necessity for a society. And we have to return to that notion and to stop seeing it as a cash cow for investing funds or individual companies, it has to be about the provision of an absolute need, a human right. But I guess, Breach, the, the counterpoint to that and what the Department of Finance will say is the apartments that are being built right now, uh, uh, while there might be um, unhappiness that they're being built by these funds, they would turn around and say that if it wasn't for those funds, there would be virtually no apartment building going on in the country. So um, not, people can't move, move into them anyway. Yeah, and, and, but, and just, just finally, the, the other point, and this was actually out of the most interesting... Um, interesting part of the documents I got from the Department of Finance where the ESRI report was was put to them um, whereby the ESRI said we should double the level of investment in social and affordable housing and the Chief Economist of the Department of Finance said if we do that and increase the national debt further further, the housing crisis will be the least of your worries. So this is the constant um, 
debate, an ideological debate that's going on um, within government departments um, and that's their response to why they can't do it. Okay, we only have a few minutes left and uh, I just want to touch on this because it's, it's, it's a huge issue for so many people and this is the national broadband uh, strategy and the national broadband rollout. Uh, Social Democrats co-leader Catherine Murphy uh, saying today that there is certainly a doubt in her mind about the delivery uh, efficiency and funding of the national broadband plan. And this, of course, follows on from that story by uh, Thomas Hubert in The Currency, uh, where he really you know, did a deep dive into the the funding and the, the people behind the National Broadband Ireland and, and found some very, very surprising um, facts there. 17,000 17, homes and businesses passed by, were passed by the um, National Broadband Ireland by October. Fewer than 3,500 of those premises connected as of the first week of December. People are tearing their hair out on this, and you must know this, Gareth. That down your way. I, I, where I live, I live in be, in between Clamell and Care. When I drive out of my um, my house, about two hundred meters away is the connection point uh, for high speed broadband, and about five hundred meters the other side is the other connection. There's about ten houses in between. Um, I'm the first one uh, where there's you no connection, and I can't get connection. So I have people every single week ringing me, asking me when will they be connected, how long do they have to wait. They really need it. And I sympathise uh, hugely with them. Um, but, you know, I, like I listen to, 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 to opposition talk about we need to speed up the rollout of broadband. And, you know, I, I agree with them totally. But these are all people who voted against uh, the broad, broadband uh, being brought through. There was a, a really important decision Thank made by the previous it. government to invest three billion in the rollout of broadband into every single house in this country. So many people were against it. They the voted against it. And now... But, but is that the reason they were against it? No. Well, okay, let's go, let's go that route, though. So if they voted against it, where do you think we'd be now? They voted against it because they wanted to go back and do the tender process again. Like, the but questions... No, no, hang on like, a second. Katie, the questions we, we have... We the questions we have... Okay, okay. If we decided to do that. It, people might be frustrated, as I am, because I'm right beside it, that, it, that it's not going as quick as possible and we have a pandemic in the middle. Imagine how slow it would be if these people were deciding no, how to no. be run. No, no. Remember how fast the ESB turned on the lights up and down the country when we had very little resources in the country? If if we were to follow the model then of competitive tender, we'd be all in the dark. We'd be sitting here with candles the on. Reason, the reason why The reason why everyone in this country will have broadband directly to their home is because of the decision that was made by Fine Gael in government and, and Fine Gael alone. <laughs> Do you not accept, though, that the big problem... I totally accept the, it. No, it's hugely frustrating, sorry, but, no, but it's, no, it's that hypocritical the big of others decision, to be sorry, to, to allow air to cherry-pick the 300,000 yeah, best houses, uh, premises out of this. And that's what uh, totally undermined the, the bidding process for, for this plan. Yeah, is, no, that, is that not something that is... Pretty no, much undisputed no, now. I, I accept. I accept that people are eager uh, to get broadband into their homes. Sorry, sorry. Do you accept <laughs> what I just said? The, the, that it was the, the allowing fact. of air to cherry pick uh, the the that's. The, the, the cherries out of that pie, yeah, basically. Yeah, which, which has meant there's an awful lot of people who've got broadband now. Um, uh, but we need to make sure that every no, single no, home no, gets people it. Haven't. So, yeah, well, I'm one of them. Um, but look, I like... We've seen over the last two years the need to have broadband into every single home. There's so many people working in rural areas and it actually benefits rural towns where I'm from, uh, the fact that people work from home 
and 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 are living locally. So you know, the quicker we get it out, the better. I'm. I'm totally in support of that. It's it's hugely beneficial to Tipperary. There's four cities w- less than an hour away from where I live. There's an awful lot of people I who used to travel that don't You now. make the case that we um, should be making, which is that it's too slow. It's too slow because of the con- competitive tendering process that cost us 30 million to roll out, yeah. even before you yeah. saw one bit of wire sticking out of a house. OK, I have one last, <laughs> one last text before we go. Air cancelled my broadband installation today after waiting three years. The broadband box is 10 metres away. That's from Morris in Dunleary town. Uh, and that's all we have time for. Just uh, the front page of the examiner tomorrow goes with that Omicron wave may exceed January spike. And um, that is uh, all from us tonight. I want to thank my guests for coming in. I want to thank you for listening. And thanks to the programme team. Stay tuned for Carl Murray on Late Date. But first we go over to Porrig Lodge on the sports desk.